Good morning again. Um, my name is Andy. I'm assistant pastor here, and another welcome to you. There seem to be a number of guests today. We are week two in a series looking at the words of Jesus spoken by him on the cross. They're all up there on the screen. And we're going to think through them all as we head towards Easter, which is just a few weeks away. And today, we are looking at today. You will be with me in paradise. So let's pray. There is a higher throne than all this world has known, where faithful ones of every tongue will one day come. Father, we thank you for such wonderful lyrics that speak of amazing truths taught in your word that tell us that all those who trust in what Jesus has done upon the cross will have their sins forgiven and will enter into your presence and be with you forever. Help us this morning as we think about paradise. Help us to think about the gospel, the good news that enables us to freely be there in Jesus. Please speak, encourage us this morning, challenge us, change our hearts, help us to believe. In your name we pray. Amen. I came across this poem about heaven the other day. It goes like this. I was shocked, confused, bewildered as I entered heaven's door. Not by the beauty, nor the lights, or its decor, but it was the folk in heaven who made me sputter and gasp, the thieves, liars, sinners, and the trash. There stood the kid from seventh grade who swiped my lunch money twice, next to him my old neighbor who never said anything nice. Herb, who I thought was rotting in hell, was sitting on cloud nine looking incredibly well. I nudged Jesus, what's the deal? I would love to hear your take. How'd all these sinners get up here? God must have made a mistake. And why is everyone so quiet, so somber? Give me a clue. Child, he said, they're all in shock. They never thought they'd be seeing you. You may have heard of this idea of there being shocks and surprises when we arrive in heaven. <laughs> shocks at exactly who we see there that we really didn't expect to. Surprises of those who we thought would be there who aren't. Why the talk of shocks and surprises? What is it that we are basing heaven's attendance upon? Surely, even though it might be subconsciously, we think heaven should be filled with people who deserve to be there. The good people. As Christians, we are clear that the gospel is a gospel of grace. It's a free gift through faith, yes? It's not about good works. But sometimes we can struggle with that. We can struggle with it ourselves because we love to earn things. We want to be worthy of any gift that we get. We want to repay the person who's given us the gift. But also we can struggle with grace when it's applied to those who, as far as we're concerned, are far a lot worse than we are. 
and therefore far more undeserving. And we can come to the conclusion that grace just isn't fair. And if heaven should be filled with the good people, then our question is, how do you define good? In our passage we had read just now, we are faced with a story of a man, this criminal, a criminal worthy of death, but through his deathbed confession seems to get away with all his crimes and enter paradise forever. Does it make you uncomfortable? Does it prompt you to think it just doesn't seem fair? How can a man who spent his whole life in insurrection, rebelling against the states, thieving, robbing, maybe even killing, spend forever in paradise? And especially when he hasn't had a chance to live a good life, to perhaps prove that he was repentant, that he'd really changed. Well, I want us to tackle those objections this morning and and think about God's grace. We may think people don't deserve it. We may think that people need to prove it. But let us be humbled that it's not about us but it is this free gift that the entry ticket to heaven is not about us, but about the Lord Jesus. I pray that we would rejoice in God's grace and that we all would respond in faith and repentance. But before we get into those objections, I thought it'd be good for us to explore paradise itself. What is paradise? What is this place that we have a problem with certain people going to. Whenever you think about paradise, what comes to your mind? Tropical desert islands, palm trees and beaches, colorful sunsets and exquisite wildlife, maybe. If you Google image paradise, these are the sorts of pictures that you get, tons and tons of them. Now this might not be your cup of tea, But whatever paradise is in our mind, it's always something amazing, isn't it? A place where it's just perfect, free from all crime and sin, suffering death, free from people often. It took a long time to scroll down all these images to find one with a person in it. (laughs) It's quite telling. Paradise is perfect until you invite someone else, I guess. If in our passage this morning, By paradise, Jesus means heaven. Then what is heaven like? The world portrays heaven as sitting up on clouds with angels playing harps. It's a place where we're all dressed in white and we're singing hymns forever. But of course, we will be eating Philadelphia cheese. So all will be okay. But if paradise is neither desert island or it's floating on clouds, what does the Bible actually teach? Well, I think it'd be good to look at two men who had a glimpse, two men in our Bibles who had a glimpse of this paradise. First is the Apostle Paul. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he describes this experience of this man. It's actually him, but he doesn't want to tell us that. And he says this, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, 
things that no one is permitted to tell. So what do we learn from Paul? Not a lot, really. <laughs> but we do see that it was an experience he had that he, could just not, he couldn't explain. He, there were no words to describe what he saw and heard. And then we have the Apostle John. In Revelation chapter 2, Jesus is preaching to those seven churches. And at the end of each letter, he has a certain phrase, certain phrase. And he says, whoever hears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to Ephesus, he says, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. The tree of life. That sends us back to the Garden of Eden. The very beginning, that first paradise where Adam and Eve lived in perfection before sin and death ever entered the world. But as we read our Bibles, the tree of life just doesn't come up ever again until Revelation. And it's not seen until the last chapter of the Bible where John has a vision of it there when he describes the new heavens and the new earth. And he says... Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb, who is Jesus. Down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river, stood the tree of life, bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree are the healing of the nations." So it seems that paradise is, is both that final resting place of God's people on the new earth, where we will be with him forever, but also temporary place in heaven. For all those who have trusted in Christ will be with him after they die. Traditionally, paradise has been described as the abode of the righteous after death. But what's common in both? of these cases is that paradise is paradise because it's in the presence of our holy God, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says to be, to be out away from the body is to be present with the Lord. And John in his description goes on and he says there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city and the servants will serve him. They will see his face. And his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. There will be no need for the light of a lamp or the light of the sun. For the Lord God will give them light. And they will reign forever. Jesus says, today you will be with me. Speaking of himself. So that is the paradise. That is there now that there will be fully on this earth one day. But our questions this morning are who will be there and how is it that they get to be there? Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Who is Jesus talking to? Good person? A righteous teacher? A charity worker? a generous, loving carer. No, he's talking to the criminal on the cross. 
Have a look down at verse 39 of Luke 23 that we read. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Unto the Messiah, save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what are these deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. We see that two men were crucified with Jesus on that Good Friday. Other gospels tell us that, that they were they were thieves in brief, but Luke takes time to record a conversation. He describes them as criminals. They were thieves. Thieves in that culture were wicked and violent thieves. They were robbers, but they were armed robbers, ready to kill if anyone got in their way. So now they've been captured and they've been sentenced to death, a death by Roman law worthy of capital punishment. They were to be executed crucified crucifixion the penalty for the scum of the earth those not worthy to be alive often in those lands you'd have crosses on the side of the road with criminals hanging on them and as people walk past the road they could spit and hurl insults and throw stones so we read of two men worthy of crucifixion one on the right and one on the left of Jesus. And here we have this man deserving of death and the hell that's coming to him. But yet what he gets is the opposite. Yes, he dies, but his hell is turned to heaven. He receives this gift. And friends, he's not the only one in Luke to do so. One of the big themes of Luke's gospel is to tell us that Jesus cares for all the outcasts, the outsiders, the wicked and the sinful. All the different types of people, the scum of society, the lowest of the low, they are the ones that Jesus spent time with. Remember? Who was it that the angel appeared to on the hill in Bethlehem? Shepherds, outcasts. He welcomed this sinful woman when she came and anointed his feet with perfume. He touched the lepers. He had tea with Zacchaeus, the tax collector. And all the time, the religious leaders pointed the finger, questioning, why is he spending time with sinners and tax collectors? Doesn't he know who they are? Doesn't he know the kind of life that they live? They don't deserve Jesus. And I think Luke tells us these stories because he's writing to a people who were also outcasts. They were Gentiles. They were non-Jews, like you and me. They weren't worthy of the kingdom of God. They weren't going to inherit it. Only that was for the Jews. But yet now, because of Jesus, the kingdom of God is for everyone. Everybody he believes. The religious leaders passed judgment. They would decide who was in and who was out. But where do you draw the line? Where do you draw the line on considering who is good enough to get in and who is too bad to keep out? Now, of course, it's fair to say that there are some who are a lot worse than others. 
But as we thought about last week, heaven's entry requirements are not about the good and the bad. The Bible tells us actually that even if we've broken the smallest little law, it's as if we've broken them all. Because God's standard is perfection. Did you know that heaven wouldn't be heaven? It would cease to be heaven if he let people in because of their good works. Let me illustrate. A jug of cold water, for those of you listening online. And a little bit of food coloring. A jug of water is clear. You can see right through it. Kind of perfection, shall we say. Able to get into heaven, no sin. And of course, if we poured the whole bottle of food coloring in, then it would be red, filthy, polluted. But even if you put a tiny drop, too much. Even the tiniest drop still spreads. It doesn't just stay on the top in the corner, out of the way of everything else. It, it spreads throughout the whole thing. Polluted, unworthy. You can't let even the smallest little bad thing into heaven. Paradise will be full of sinners, but of course redeemed, perfected sinners. They won't be full of people comparing stories of, of look at my good works, look at what I did for the Lord. But stories of people pointing to Jesus saying, look how amazing God's grace was in my life. But often our understanding, our response to God's grace is revealing of our understanding of it. If we spend our time deciding who is worthy of God's grace, then we put ourselves on level with God. We make ourselves the judge. We draw the line. But the truth of the Bible is that he is the one who draws the line. And it's perfection. And so none of us are worthy and the truth is, if you are in heaven, it's because you're a sinner. But you've been perfected through the blood of Jesus. Heaven is only for those who know they are sinners. Did you know that? Remember Jesus, when he was eating with tax collectors, the religious leaders were complaining, and Jesus says to them, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And by that, he didn't mean that the righteous were okay and they're fine, they'll get into heaven as they are. He meant he came for those who knew that they were sinful. For those who believed themselves righteous and worthy, those who were hurling insults at Jesus. The horror is that on the day of their death, the lack of paradise would have revealed to them the truth about heaven's entry requirements. It is of grace, a gift. But this man, we may ask, did he really change? Did he really mean what he said to Jesus on the cross? He never had to live a life of obedience. He never had to prove his faith genuine. Our well, second point is that paradise is a gift 
of grace through faith. When we read our passage, did you notice that we have two criminals and they both speak to Jesus? They both ask him a question, but only one of them gets a response. Jesus only speaks to one. Both of them have probably heard of Jesus before. They've read the inscription above his head, this is the king of the Jews. They certainly are hearing the opinions of those who are on the ground, but what is their response going to be? We read the, the first one was unrepentant. He joins in with the mocking. He says, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. The Jewish leaders, the Roman soldiers, they did the same thing, mocking Jesus, telling him to come off the cross. He's a criminal. He's about to die, and it's like he doesn't care. He's not even willing to cry out for a plea of mercy. But yet the other criminal, the other criminal rebukes the first. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. You're condemned to death. But then, from this criminal, we get three sentences. The most important sentences of his whole life. And they happen to be his last. First, he admits that he has done wrong. He knows that he's worthy of death. Do you see that in verse 41? He says, we are punished justly for what we are getting our deeds deserve. He knows that he's a sinner. He knows that his punishment fits the crime, that he should die. He's not trying to resist it. He's not trying to make excuses. I'm a sinner. I deserve to die today. Then secondly, he believes in Jesus. He acknowledges that Jesus is the one without sin. This man has done no wrong. He confesses his innocence. Two of them on that cross were worthy of death, but Jesus wasn't. Then in verse 42, Jesus recognizes that Jesus is the king. He's the Messiah. He is God's son. He asks about his kingdom, and he's, he recognizes that this is who Jesus is. He is the one who came after all, despite him being upon the cross. He believes that it's Jesus, only him, who can save him even though he is about to die. That somehow through his death, Jesus can bring life. He believes in Jesus. And then finally, his third sentence is, through his question, he asks Jesus to save him. Remember me, he says. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. In the Bible, to remember... In the Old Testament particularly, it didn't mean just to have a thought about or to recall to mind later. It meant to save, to deliver, to provide. Think of Samson, a man who was betrayed by Delilah, lost his hair and was stood between the two pillars in the temple. And he prayed, God, remember me. And God did. Gave him a last bout of strength. He pushed down the pillars he died, but he also saved the Jews. Think of Hannah, 1 Samuel 1, crying because she didn't have a baby. She said, God, remember me. And the Lord provided her a baby. And then God said through the prophets to Israel, 
sent out into exile, he said, if you turn from your wicked ways, I will remember you and I'll bring you back. A criminal on the cross asked Jesus to rescue him, to bring him into the kingdom whenever that would be. So he confesses his sin. He believes in Jesus and what he's done and he asks Jesus to save him. And Jesus says, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Three sentences. That's it. No test to see whether he really meant it. No follow-up questions. No length of time to repay God for the second chance he's been given. One moment, one confession of faith. And next, paradise. Now that's not to say that if we simply follow that path, confess our sins, believe in Jesus, ask him to save us, and then go back to live our life how we once did, that all would be fine. That's a misunderstanding of sin and a misunderstanding of grace. But we have no idea what kind of response this man would have made if he had lived. He didn't have a chance to prove it, but what we do know is that Jesus believed him. Jesus believed that his confession was genuine. Are you sitting uncomfortably? It's interesting, isn't it, that accepting salvation from sin is purely by faith. It's not to do with changed behavior. It can be difficult. A changed life is the response, is the fruit of salvation, absolutely. But it's not the means. Good works are the response, but not the requirements. And yet sometimes in church, we want people to change first. And then we can say, now you're ready to become a Christian. We find it hard to believe that someone has become a Christian if they haven't yet changed. Good works are the fruits, but, but sometimes we feel more comfortable if there was a bit of good works first, or, or at least a stopping of bad works. We have that sense that we feel like we need to earn it, even just a little bit. What would you do in this situation? Next Sunday morning, someone walks through the door into church who is kind of an obvious sinner. Someone who's clearly rebelled and living their life away from God for whatever reason. But as they hear the gospel preached, they confess their sin. They realize that they are worthy of God's wrath. They come to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that it's through him that they can be saved. They ask Jesus to forgive them. Now, if that person was unfortunately then to be knocked down by a bus, would you be confident that they would be in heaven? On what basis would you make your assessment? They've not lived a changed life. They've not had a chance to, to respond with their life. But their faith seemed genuine. Their confession was real. Now, of course, God is judge. He is the one who decides. But I wonder what we would think. According to the Bible, according to the words of Jesus, that man would be in paradise. Now, 
Will you be in paradise? What does it mean to be there? Paul tells us in Romans that if we declare with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, and if we believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved, you'll be rescued. Paul goes on and he says that because it's with your heart that you believe and are justified, which means that you're made right with God, you're forgiven of your sins. It's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved, are rescued from God's judgment. Will you be in paradise? If you haven't done that, then do it. Do it today. Do it now. If you are a Christian this morning, if you are someone who has trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, then what is the motivation? What is the motivation of how you live your Christian life? Are you living as a response with praise and worship, seeking to obey him with thankfulness because of what he has done? Or are you feeling like a a great heavy burden, a debt upon your shoulders that you feel like you owe? You're willing to accept forgiveness, but you feel you've got an awful lot to make up. The Lord wants you to live a life of good works. He's prepared them in advance for you to do but he wants you to do it with joy out of a a response for what he has done. He's freely given you paradise through your faith in Christ, but we're not to try and repay him because we can't in our own strength. Paradise is a gift through faith because of Christ. He is the one who makes us right. Now, while I was sat down before the sermon, I remembered that there was a trick to this little illustration. I can put something in this red water to make it go clear, but obviously I was too late to do that this morning. So just imagine I put something in the water which represents what Jesus has done for us, taken away the sin, and he's made us brand new, clean, perfect, not even a spot Maybe a better illustration, actually, because it's not that we are changed a little bit, but we're made brand new, a new creation in Christ Jesus, able to be in, in paradise. Because there Jesus hung on the cross as an innocent man, free from sin. He was righteous. And as he took our sin, he gave us his righteousness so we could be with him in paradise. A few years ago, there was a woman who led a team of American students on an educational trip to Germany. They were waiting at the train station for their flight home to get to the airport, and one of the leaders um, said, please check your luggage to make sure you have your passport and your tickets. When the other leader checked, she couldn't find her ticket. The train arrived, they had to get on to go to the airport, but what was she going to do with no ticket? She phoned the airline to see what she could do. She felt very embarrassed because she was the team leader. They arrived at airport check-in desk, and because she had lost her ticket, it meant that the whole group had to wait. They were held back. The flight attendant took in all the tickets to make sure it was right and to find out where her ticket should be placed. And by the time it all got sorted, 
they'd missed their chance to explore duty-free. <laughs> Finally, she got a ticket, but no seats. She was so apologetic, she felt so guilty. Not having a seat was exactly what she felt she deserved. Maybe she'd have to stand at the back in the corner. Well, finally, she got a seat and boarded the plane. All her friends turned right and sat in a nice big section where they could all be together having fun. The woman with a lost ticket turned left, all by herself, feeling sorry for holding everyone up, feeling disappointed that she couldn't sit with her friends. And then she found herself in business class. She sat down in a nice cushy chair with lots of leg room. The flight attendant brought a drink, which she refused, feeling a fraud and completely unworthy. You can imagine her friends stuck in economy class, feeling jealous and angry. We didn't lose our tickets. What did she do to deserve business class? She didn't deserve business class. And she didn't earn it. But she was now being asked to enjoy it and to receive it with a nice glass of wine. Grace can often seem unfair to the observer. But to the one receiving it, it is wonderful. A wonderful gift. If you know this morning that you do not deserve to be in heaven, that's a good place to be. Trust in Christ and then enjoy the gift that he has given. Friends, when we hear stories of sinful people turning to Christ, let's not judge, but let's give thanks. Let's give thanks that grace even exists. Let's give thanks that grace even came to us. And let's give thanks that grace just goes far beyond anything we can imagine. Paradise will be a wonderful place filled with liars and sinners and adulterers and murderers wretches like you and me who've been washed clean through the blood of Jesus Christ. Those who were once blind now see. Those who were lost to God are now found. And as the last verse of that great hymn by John Newton when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that because of Jesus, because of his perfect life and sacrifice for us upon the cross, paying the price for sin, removing it from us through simple faith in him, confessing our sins, trusting in Christ alone to rescue us. The words of Jesus are true for us too, that today, or the day that we die, the day that you return, we will be with you in paradise. Thank you for the grace. Father, forgive us when we find grace difficult, when we want to try and earn it, when we want to try and repay you for it. Father, forgive us when we think that grace is unfair, that there are those who get it that we think don't deserve it. Lord, remind us that none of us deserve your grace. 
but give thanks that you rescue the worst of sinners. And thank you that Jesus has paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he, Jesus, washed it white as snow. Amen.